May the words of my mouth and meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Military generals use a term to explain why most battles and wars are lost. It's called mission creep. Mission creep is when you plan to do one thing and then you end up doing something altogether different or something at least different, if not altogether. I mean, for instance, the goal might be to remove an occupying force from a country or maybe it is to secure a vulnerable area or to rescue hostages or whatever. And before you know it, the army or the military or whatever begins to try to take different kinds of ground or eliminate looting or, or become some way um, involved in some other thing, and the original mission is obfuscated. You, can't, you no longer remember what it was that you were supposed to do. Nearly always the alternate mission, the mission that kind of creeps in and takes over, seems like a good idea at the time. And it continues to seem like a good idea right up to the point when you realize you're losing the war. Um, the original goal has been lost. Generals discover they're in way too deep. They can't change now. Refocusing is either, you know, wildly problematic or simply um, impossible. An example of this. Uh, following the Second World War, uh, the nation of Korea was divided into two nations. North Korea above the 38th parallel, South Korea below it. Um, North Korea, obviously a communist country uh, with huge Soviet influence, South Korea, free market economy, major American and Western country influence. In 1950, the nation of North Korea, with permission from the Soviet Union, invaded the South. And um, they made it to Seoul, uh, overwhelmed the South Korean army, and were basically in control of the country within just a few weeks. And um, the uh, four months later, after that, the United States uh, sends a military force under uh, President Truman into Korea. It takes about uh, four months, but the U.S. pushes the north, completely north of the 38th parallel, has regained control of South Korea. And at this point, President Truman decides to tell General MacArthur to push on north to Pyongyang and take the North Korean capital. In fact, to take the North Korean country, to try to reunify Korea as one um, free market economy and free market world. This is where things get dicey, because as the Americans push north into North uh, Korea and into the capital, Pyongyang, they, they arrive, and suddenly the Chinese enter the war. And the Chinese begin to fight. And for three years, there is a war in Korea. Over these three years, the United States lost 30,000 American soldiers. And what was then $30 billion to fight that war, today's money would be $300 billion to wage that same war. After three years, the North Koreans had pushed the Americans back to the 38th parallel. And that's where the war ended, with a, a peace treaty, a truce, a, a ceasefire. In fact, the war is still ongoing, if you know anything about it. There's still, uh, it's still an active war. Um, and now, I'm making no uh, political judgment or evaluation, anything, other than to say, if you had asked President Truman, do you want to fight three more years of war, lose 30,000 lives, spend $300 billion, and end up right back where you began? He almost certainly would say, no, not a good idea. The mission was lost. The mission was to liberate South Korea. And suddenly it became a mission to take 
North Korea. Mission creep. Mission began as one thing, creeped into something else. In American business and Western businesses, um, they realized some time ago, and it became very popular, especially in the late 80s, early 90s, that, um, that mission creep isn't just a military phenomenon. It happens in commerce as well. And so companies set out to, uh, to, to make uh, uh, and define their missions more rigorously. I mean, it happens like this, you know, like a widget company. A company, somebody sets out to make widgets. They make the best widgets ever they can make, and they make a prototype, and it's pretty good, and then they make widget 2.0, and it's even better, and then, you know, they come up with, uh, you know, the ultimate widget, and, um, and they're selling it, and they're doing really well. This happens all the time, right? And then somebody comes up, and they want to they say, you know, widget company needs to diversify. Let's make copper snuffs. I tried to come up with a different word. That was the best I could come up with. So <laughs> they, they make up, they make up, they're going to make, get into the copper snuff market, you know, and, and they begin to do this. And, and, uh, you know, pretty soon they're, they're, they're kind of making inroads in the copper snuff market. But what happens is, is all the R&D, all the, all the uh, attention that used to go to widgets is now moved. And you know what happens. One day the president is watching television. And she's watching the Super Bowl, let's say. Did you notice I made her a she? And she's watching TV. And, um, and she sees a rival widget company selling a widget better than hers. And she's aghast. She didn't even know they existed. What happened? The original company lost sight of the original mission, began to do something else. Mission creep. It'll ruin your business. This is what this was uh, like. I say the rage, eighties, nineties, and even still today, uh, a big emphasis in business on watching the mission. And, and so companies set out to write mission statements. Let's get a single sentence, pithy as we can make it, so that we can remember what we're supposed to be doing. This is why we exist. And, and it, you have to be really careful here too, because. Some companies set out to make the best widgets. Some decide they're going to be the best telegraph company. And they name themselves American Telegraph. And along comes the telephone. And they're like, oh, no, we didn't see this coming. Okay, American Telephone and Telegraph. AT&T, right? And they didn't see it coming, but all of a sudden nobody has a phone in their house anymore, right? They're all carrying around in their pocket like, okay, I think we can still work with this. But what's coming next? Been better off to call themselves the American Communication Company, wouldn't they? This is our business. Is to know what you're supposed to do. Mission creep is not just a danger for military; it's also one for commercial. And perhaps it's not limited to those enterprises either. Maybe mission creep is actually more dangerous and more invasive than we thought. Mark's Gospel. Jesus begins in chapter one his preaching work in Galilee northern part of Israel, Mark says it begins with these words. This is Mark chapter 1, not in your text this morning, but listen to this. Now, after John was arrested, that is John the Baptist, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God and saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The kingdom has come near. Some translations have a more literal rendering. The kingdom of God is at hand. Uh, Eugene Peterson translates this, time is up, the kingdom of God is here. This is Jesus' first words in Mark's gospel. The kingdom has arrived. Now, I know that sometimes we think about the kingdom of God as like far off, heaven, whatever. Um, It's going to come in the sweet by and by, but Jesus is not saying that, is he? The kingdom of God is here. It's at hand. It's right here. Well, in Mark's gospel, the story moves on quickly from there. Jesus is 
sermon is very short, uh, unlike mine today. And so he um, he begins this, uh, the kingdom of heaven is, is right here, kingdom of God is here. And he goes on and he calls some disciples. We have uh, Peter and Andrew and then James and John. And uh, from there they go to synagogue together. Jesus is the preacher of the day in the synagogue. And just like you, people are amazed. <laughs> that was funny. They say, oh, look at this teaching. And with such authority, not just the content, but the manner in which he was teaching. And then something really weird happens. A guy stands up and begins to yell at Jesus from the congregation. I imagine he does it in a very unnatural voice, you know, a kind of, uh, you know, I don't know, um, otherworldly kind of voice. Uh, kind of that voice that makes the hair stand up on the back of your neck. Well, you're really creeped out by it. And Jesus does something. He, he calls out the, this man as demon-possessed. And he casts out the demon. And everybody in the synagogue, like in the church, they're, they're amazed. They're like, who is this guy? He teaches with authority. He has power to cast out demons. This is amazing. I'm glad I came to church today. Even if there was going to be two inches of snow, I'm glad I made it in because you never knew what was going to show up. I hope none of you stand up and start shouting at me in an unnatural voice. Anyway, short story shorter, Jesus moves on from the synagogue, and they're heading to uh, to Peter's house, but all the, the, the rage around town is Jesus' celebrity status. What an amazing person. And that gets us to today's text. They, they're, they're leaving the synagogue. And I think the very same day, I mean, it's really clear in the text, the same day from the synagogue, go directly to Peter's house. This is what you do after church, right? You go there and you, you go home. It's time for, for brunch. And, and you know, you, you get there and you're ready to, to eat some food. But they arrive and Peter's mother-in-law, whom he didn't even notice was missing from church that day, is sick in bed with a fever. Maybe he did notice. Maybe this Mark forgot to write it down. Um, they get in there, and Peter's mother-in-law is sick in bed with a fever. Uh, you should know, just as a sort of an aside, that in the ancient world, there were often very crowded living conditions. Uh, in our world, you know, we like our own space. You know, we, we want plenty of it. In ancient world, you could often have an extended family. We know that Peter lives there. His wife lives there. Um, his mother-in-law lives there. We know that the Andrew lives there. It's the home of Peter and Andrew. And presumably Jesus is living there with them. So you've got at least three adult males and three adult females living in the same, uh, in the same home. Assuming that Andrew also is married. So you have minimum six people living in this house the size of a one car garage. I mean, it's a crowded conditions. Um, if you're wondering about the thing about Peter's wife, um, having a mother-in-law indicates he had a wife, but also in uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 9, um, St. Paul mentions Peter's wife as well. So we, we have the sense of, of this crowded kind of living condition. And Jesus goes in, and, and here's one more. Take your bulletin. Will you look at it with me? Um, this is uh, uh, verse 30. This is the second verse uh, in the second sentence then in the gospel lesson. Chapter 30, now Simon's mother-in-law, Simon is Peter, Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told her, uh, told him, that is Jesus, about her at once. And he came and he took her by the hand and lifted her up. Then the fever left her, and she began to serve him, or serve them. A new power. Preaches, teaches with authority. Casts out demons. 
And now, simply by taking a woman who's lying in bed, sick with a fever, he raises her up, and instantly she is well and healed. She gets up and is um, is is moving about, begins to to do about her daily tasks. Now, this is this is really significant. The touching part and raising up for two reasons. Um, one is that rabbis in the ancient world would never touch any woman, not even not even with the slightest touch, unless it was his wife. There would be no contact with any other woman. Also, that nobody in the ancient world wanted to touch somebody who was bedridden with a fever because they were fearful of contagious diseases. Jesus is not afraid of being contaminated either by this woman's illness or by her femininity. Both of these things are... uh, He is a bold and courageous person, right? And so he takes her by the hand, lifts her up, and she's well. She gets up and serves them, which I think is interesting because it means she needs no convalescence. She gets up and she's instantly as well as she's ever been. I don't know about you, but sometimes around my house, I'll say to my wife, like, but I was sick yesterday. And she'll say, yeah, that was yesterday. <laughs> you know, today is a different day. You're no longer. But, you know, I need I need time. I've got to work my way into a regular life. She does not. She gets up and, meet, and, and begins to serve. And meanwhile, back in town, the buzz is still going, right? Jesus' celebrity status is getting so big that look at the next verse, verse 32. That evening, so synagogue in the morning, healing at noon. That evening, a few hours later, at sunset. Why sunset? Because the Sabbath is finally over. At that evening, at sunset, they brought him all who were sick and possessed with demons. And the whole city was gathered around the door. You imagine this little house, the size of a of a single car garage, you know, like a tiny little house, probably not even that big. And the people are just packed around the outside of the door. There's just a mob and the mob is bringing sick people and demon possessed people. Um, there's this, this big kind of crowd. And, and by the way, I don't think demon possessed means psychologically ill. I don't mean, think it means schizophrenics. I think it means demon possessed, filled with, with demonic influence and forces and um and and if you think that we've become so sophisticated that we no longer believe in those sorts of things um i think one of the worst demons that is in infiltrating the world is this demon of secularism that there is no spiritual world that demonic influence is itself a, a terrible influence but there is no spiritual world everything is just you know in this and that costs you nothing extra that's just my yeah these people who are who are ill and demon possessed and gathered around and Jesus heals them. I think this takes a while. Don't you know I mean? I think, I think he's at this for a long time. Sunset, it's evening, and he goes to bed, and, and then what happens? Verse 38. Look down there with me. Um, oh, I'm sorry. I, I, I jumped ahead a little bit. Um, Jesus uh, leaves, and I, I need my glasses here. Just, just uh, one second. Here we go. That evening, um, and he healed many, uh, and he went, verse 35, and rising, it took me just a second, and rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a solitary place to pray. Gets up in the morning, goes out to pray. And what happens? The friends show up. They won't even let him pray alone. Hey, come on. There are people. They're looking for you. We've got work to do. There's a mission to be involved in here. Let's go and do this. And Jesus answered them, here it is, verse 38, Let us go to the neighboring towns, so that I may proclaim the message there also. For that is what I came to do. 
Let me go to the neighboring towns and proclaim the message there. Uh, some have, so I can preach the message there. And that's a fair translation. Uh, the word in, in, in Mark's Greek is keruso, which means to preach or to proclaim. It's really um, a, a victory announcement. It's the town crier. You know, like in the old, remember the old um, uh, medieval town movies, you know, the, uh, the guy would come in and be, hear ye, hear ye. You know, this is, this is sort of that town crier sort of thing. I have a message. Everybody needs to listen. Uh, this is what, what it means to, to proclaim. And Jesus is certainly doing that orally. He's certainly proclaiming a message. But he's doing it not just in word, but also in deed. Healing and casting out demons is part of proclaiming the message. Proclaim the message, the kingdom has arrived. God's kingdom is here. Listen, long way around to get to this, Jesus has a mission. His mission is not to heal people. Jesus has a mission, and it's not to cast out demons. He has a mission, and it's not even to teach, though he does all these things. His mission is to proclaim that God's kingdom has arrived. It is here right now. Ultimately, he will proclaim it by giving his life on a cross. The mission is to proclaim that the kingdom of God has arrived. This, he says in verse 38, is what I came to do. I came to proclaim the arrival of God's kingdom. Jesus avoided mission creep. And it wasn't because his friends helped him. (laughs) <laughs> they, they were terrible about this. At every turn, read through Mark's gospel. They have a great idea. You should do this. In, in chapter 8, right in the midpoint of, of Mark's gospel, Jesus asks his friends, who do people say that I am? And then one of his friends says, but I'll tell you who you are. You're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And he said, you're great. And then he said, now i got to die. And his friend Peter said, no, that's not a good idea. <laughs> we have another way. Mission creep, he avoided at every turn. St. Paul says that the church is the body of Christ. Many times he'll say we are in Christ. The metaphor of we are the body of Christ, the church is the body of Christ in the world. And if the church is the body of Christ in the world, the church has a mission. And the church's mission is the same mission that Jesus had when he came. We are to proclaim in word and deed, the arrival of the kingdom of God. So the church is not a political entity. The church is not an entity that raises money and and, and seeks to gain power. The church is to be the body of Christ in the world. It is to do what Jesus did. He resisted authority, right? He resisted the the, the political authority. He had his own spiritual authority. Why would he... take a step down to political authority. He resisted every t- turn to, to, to drive away from that mission and for mission to cre- a, a separate mission to creep in. But we, the church, are prone to mission creep because we're human. We are. We, we lose sight of the mission. All the time, we lose sight of the mission. You have your bulletin? When you look at the front, first of all, before looking at it, you think anybody here would know, I mean... What the mission of the church is. I mean, it's right on the front of the bulletin. It's there every week. It has been there since I've been here for for eight years. (laughs) And here's the point. The mission of the church is to glorify God. That's what we say, right? The mission of Holy Trinity Anglican Church, 
our Holy Trinity Anglican Church exists to, which is the same way of saying it, to glorify God. This is what we do. To glorify, this is what Jesus does. In John's gospel, what does Jesus say over and over again? I do only that which the Father shows me to do. The Father shows him to proclaim the message of the gospel. We exist to glorify God. How? By forming fully committed followers of Jesus Christ. We exist to form fully committed followers of Jesus Christ. Not, you know, people who are somewhat interested in Jesus. <laughs> not uh, not a spiritual community that likes to pray. We should do that. We should like people to like Jesus. We, we exist not even to do good works in the world. We exist to glorify God by forming fully committed followers of Jesus Christ. And we can't do it alone. We are dependent upon the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why this Trinitarian mission for a church called Holy Trinity, for crying out loud, it ought to be Trinitarian, right? The, the, Trinitarian mission that, to make fully committed followers of God, uh, of Jesus, and therein glorify God. That's not just the church's mission. That ought to be my mission, Joe's mission. And it ought to be your mission to glorify God and to help make followers of Jesus Christ. Fully committed followers. The Westminster Catechism reads this. What's the chief end of a person? It actually says man, but it was written in the 16th century, so it didn't really count. What's the chief end of a person? The language we don't use, it chief end. What's the main goal? What's the ultimate mission? What's the purpose of every human being? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. This is what the, the ultimate mission of every person is. To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And you know what? We live in a really slippery world. And that mission sometimes becomes something else. We get mission creep. uh, Individually and corporately. We forget what our mission is. And sometimes we begin to think that our mission is to build a fortune. Or even to provide for a family. That our mission is to, um, you know, to do our jobs or fulfill the expectations of others. We sometimes think that our job is to be religious. Our mission is to be religious or to get people to go to church. Those things are all great. They're not our mission. Our mission is to glorify God. Did you hear what St. Paul said in the, in the, in the New Testament letter, the, the epistle reading this morning? I've become all things to all people so that by some means I might win some. To the Jews, I live like a Jew. And when I'm with Gentiles, I live like a Gentile. To the strong, I'm like one of the strong. To the weak, I'm like one of the weak. Why? So that by some means, I might glorify God by making fully committed followers of Jesus Christ. We have a mission. We need to know what it is. And by all means, avoid mission creep. Our mission is to glorify God. This and nothing else. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.